So, why think? I suppose at first it, it doesn't sound like a debatable question because it's the type of thing that you just do, and as a result of which it doesn't merit much in the way of examination. But I think that we can uh, deepen our experience of the answer to the question by posing it in a way that's more urgent, or at the very least um, fortifying the arguments of our opponents so as to have a more profound sense as to the response or our attempts at formulating one. So I'm going to try to give you an argument as to why not to think at the outset so you can feel kind of like existentially and otherwise personally assailed by the question. So that way the response to it will come as like a healing balm, a sweet salve for your soul. So <clears throat> the case for why not think. Typically we acknowledge that thinking and willing are you know, part and parcel of our highest aspirations. Um, so if we were to abandon it, then we would be contenting ourselves with what is lower. Why might one be interested in such a course of action? So another way of formulating it is why would we kind of abdicate our transcendent uh, or otherwise spiritual, this isn't to say like necessarily religious, but this is to say like immaterial or not wholly material aspirations. Why would we abdicate that responsibility in favor of a kind of quiet contentedness or sensualism, okay? This, I think we can actually observe in human life, and it comes in a variety of forms. Um, there's, on the one hand, like the kind of hedonistic self-indulgence with a post hoc justification. So some people just like really want to eat a lot of food and enjoy a lot of sensual pleasures. And then sometimes they'll give you a reason for which, but it's usually cobbled together and not too terribly coherent. But then there are some people who have a kind of well-crafted philosophical theory as to why this is actually in our best interest. Uh, and we can class these into a general category which usually goes by the name of nihilism, which comes from the Latin word nihil, which means nothing, okay? So nothingism. Uh, the general tenet being, and this is to patent broad brushstrokes, to wildly oversimplify and to do no real credit to these people who are individual and have their own particular arguments, but whenever you make generalizations, such is our fate. Um, but the general contention is that human life uh, is void of purpose and meaning, or, on the other hand, that, that all meaning is somehow constructed. Okay? It's a matter of human invention. So it's something that we fashion, not something that we discover. And uh, it's also oftentimes part of this that thinking is but vain musing or self-deception or so much foolishness. What we have is a wholly animal life, and we can hope or nothing beyond that. In fact, the question of hope is silly. So, to give this concrete expression, um, there is one novel which, well, there are lots of novels which display this in fantastic fashion. One that I read recently is called The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Uh, so Jack London died in the 1910s. Uh, he started writing novels in the early 1900s, the most famous of which, of course, are The Call of the Wild and White Fang, both of which are delightful, and both for both of which the, the protagonist is a dog. Um, <laughs> or a wolf dog, or you get it. Um, and I picked up The Sea Wolf because at first I was uh, taken by the title, What is a Sea Wolf? I later came to discover that the French word loup, which means wolf, also means bass. So I just like bass as in like sea bass. That's not actually part of the book. That was a subsequent discovery. I found it fascinating. I share that with you for the sole point of excitement, okay? Um, but the story of The Sea Wolf uh, is about a man named Humphrey Van Leyden who falls off a ship in like a little bit of a wreck in the San Francisco Bay. He's like traveling in Sausalito. He, he falls in the drink and the tides take him out to sea and he gets picked up 
by a fishing boat or a boat that is on a seal hunting expedition. Um, and it is captained by a man named Wolf Larsen, who is an incredible character. And the first two-thirds of the book are an exploration of nihilism. Um, unfortunately, the last third of the book is awful uh, because he introduces the question of nihilism, and then he tries to answer it, and he says that the answer is romantic love. But the female character is terrible, wildly unbelievable, and I think it's like basically a misogynistic book, which is heartbreaking. Um, so I recommend the first two-thirds. Once you're on like the edge of despair, just close it up and then do something else. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so what is it about Wolf Larsen that puts us to the question? Well, he is a kind of icon of brute force and ruthless terror. He is uh, the Nietzschean Ubermensch. Recall that Nietzsche died in 1900. He went crazy right around 1889. If you're ever thinking, I want to read Nietzsche, I don't know where to start. A great place to start is with his last work, which is called Ecce Homo, and it's debated as to whether or not he was sane while writing it. So it gives you a kind of fevered, breathless tour of Nietzsche's most wild thoughts. Um, but what we have in Wolf Larsen is a kind of literary expression of a Nietzschean Ubermensch. And he has a very reductionistic view of human life. I'm going to read you a quotation, and then we will unpack it together. <clears throat> life, he says, is a ferment a yeasty something which devours life that it might live, and living is merely successful piggishness. Why, if there is anything in supply and demand, life is the cheapest thing in the world. There is only so much water, so much earth, so much air, but the life that is demanding to be born is limitless. Nature is a spendthrift. Look at the fish and their millions of eggs. For that matter, look at you and me. In our loins are the possibilities of millions of lives. Could we but find time and opportunity and utilize the last bit and every bit of the unborn life that is in us, we could become the fathers of nations and populate continents. Life, bah, it has no value. Of cheap things, it is the cheapest. Everywhere it goes begging. Nature spills it out with a lavish hand. Where there is room for one life, she sows a thousand lives, and its life eats life till the strongest and most piggish life is left. Awesome. <clears throat> so this state of affairs, uh, the state of affairs that he has discovered, conditions his approach to thought. So at first, the protagonist is a story who is named Humphrey Van Leyden. Um, he is taken by this character, kind of overmastered by him. And then he comes to discover that he has a, a quite a collection of excellent books. Uh, it seems to betray the trappings of erudition. And so Van Leyden tries to engage Larson with some spirited debate. And you think, you hope, you pray that Larson is going to turn the corner, that he's going to see the light and see that thought and action are invested with purpose and there's something distinctive about human life that sets it apart from that of the beast. But he never does. Uh, and I think that is what is most attractive about his character is that he is resolute. If you've ever read Cormac McCarthy novels, uh, there are many characters like this. Like if you've ever read Sunset Limited, which is a, it's just a two-man play effectively, and it's... It's conducted between a man who hopes and a man who does not. Uh, and there's something that is irrefutable about the logic of the man who does not. And you find yourself confronted by it on the one hand and defeated by it on the other. So you find a similar thing at work with Wolf Larsen. And he attributes his sorrow, his despair, his present state to the fact that he ever began to think. So a kind of telling quotation is, My mistake was in ever opening the books. My mistake was in ever opening the books. Now, this might seem to you a bit dramatic by comparison to our ordinary experience, but 
There are many mundane examples which I think carry a similar weight. Think of the contentedness of lower creation. You have never seen a disappointed pig, nor have you ever seen a frustrated live oak. They are simply what they are, and they unfold as a matter of course or instinctually. We say that he's as happy as a pig in a poke for a reason, because pigs in a poke just are happy, even though they are covered in slop. Think also about the problems that are introduced by thought. It's a kind of commonplace that intellectual workers suffer a higher rate of suicide than do non-intellectual workers. When you begin to think, you introduce into your life all kinds of terrible problems. Um, the kind of contemporary psychological science of cognitive behavioral therapy seizes upon precisely this point. When you think of things, you introduce all kinds of cognitive distortions. We catastrophize, we overgeneralize, we negative think. So, if the tools ready at hand are so terribly flawed, or if they can be put uh, to such flawed use, would we not be better served by abandoning them and adopting the course of a kind of contented hedonist? In a certain sense, kind of, again, abdicating our responsibility for a higher aspiration or terming it something entirely other, recognizing that responsibility is just a religious imposition and as a result of which we are more free if we have denied it. So this is to heighten our awareness of the fact that it is a question to be entertained and not merely uh, a truism to be described at length. So in what follows, just brief things, three brief things. First, I'll give a little like um, theological prelude. And then just a description of what intellect is, and then a description of what flourishing is uh, with respect to the intellect, and then a final thought about how to flourish here and now in a university setting, uh, and then a little theological postlude. So first, a little uh, theological prelude. Uh, it's often fruitful or helpful to begin the question with the question of why God creates. We were just talking about it earlier today at the C.S. Lewis Center. So why does God create? Um, given a certain theistic context, and I'm operating from the worldview and thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas would say that God needs for nothing, right? There is nothing lacking. He doesn't, um, you know, need for company, nor is there a human-shaped hole in his heart for which we answer, okay? So God does not need. Rather, the reason for which he creates is because, you know, he thought we might like it, because he had a secret too good to keep, and he spends himself, or expends himself, in creation, in sharing that secret. So creation, on this understanding, is principally a matter of love and its manifestation. God creates out of love, on the pattern of love, and unto love, so that creatures could have a partaking or a sharing in that love. And God, again on St. Thomas's thought, fills all of creation with testimony of that love. So he is not content to create one good thing or two good things or many good things, nor could his overabounding divine life be summarized in one created word. We have a kind of fascination with this. Like, what if there were one greatest creature? Okay, like the last two Jurassic Park movies are premised on precisely this thing, you know. Even if God were to make the best Indominus Rex or the best Indoraptoron offer, it would not say everything of God that there is to be said. <laughs> Right, so, so God fills all of creation with varied um, and kind of multifarious testimony of who he is so that by many wending ways we could return to a unified knowledge of him. As the prophet Zechariah says, in heaven his name 
will be one. But until such time, it is multiplex and multiform. He doesn't say the last thing. Um, so God fills all of creation, and he fills every rank and tier. So he makes elements, and he makes rocks, minerals. He makes plants, he makes animals. And he makes men and women at the height, at the summit of material creation. And each of those things, well, he also makes angels, but each of those things contributes to the glory of God or manifests the nature of God precisely by being what it is. So rocks manifest the glory of God by being adamantine or by being rocky. Plants manifest the glory of God by being verdant, right? Lush. And animals manifest the glory of God by fleeing from predators and by eating food and by having offspring and by, you know, being animally. So... What then is distinctive about our nature? How are we set apart and how do we manifest the glory of God? And this is where we get to the question of intellect. So what is distinctive about us, what sets us apart from the beasts, is that we have minds with which to know and hearts with which to love. And there is a kind of universal scope to those things. So a brief word about intellect. What is it that we mean when we say intellect or mind? Those are different things, but I'll use them interchangeably. Here, we can follow the method of Aristotle and take a kind of phenomenological approach. So let's just like observe what is out there and from it draw certain conclusions. So Aristotle observes that some things are set apart from other things on account of the fact that they have peculiar properties or they exercise peculiar activities. So like rocks, you're you're, you're pretty sure that it's not going to do anything wild on you. You know, like, I'm going to set you here and you're going to stay, okay? Like, we use them as paperweights for precisely that reason. You don't use, like, chipmunks as paperweights because they're more skittish, right? So, like, rocks, okay. But then you get up to plants, and he's like, yeah, these things, they're just, you know, they're just a little more dynamic. There's a greater degree of interiority, and they're doing things that I don't observe in rocks. They are growing, and they are self-nourishing, and they're reproducing. And then he works his way up to animals, and he says, these things move, and they also have sense cognition. Like, they take in... Uh, stimulus from their environment, they interiorize it in a kind of way and they react accordingly. And then he works his way up to man and he says there's something distinct about human beings. And he happens upon these two, well, in the subsequent tradition we'll describe will more at length, but he happens upon the fact that we have, we have minds, we have intellects. And it's peculiar to us that there are certain activities that betray this fact. So we have language and we make tools and we worship, you know, like Pache elephants who have, like, funeral rites. We have more distinctive worship than do elephants, okay? Um, I don't think that's a debatable claim. Okay. Um, and, and if you're following Walker Percy on these types of questions, we're the only thing that thinks about thinking, okay? We're a very strange beast. We're very hung up on our own interior life. So some psychologists will say that the only reason for which language develops is just need satisfaction, we need words to describe what it is that we want so that we can assimilate them, okay? But we also want to name things because we want our minds to be conformed to what is. We want it so that what is out there takes up a kind of residence in here and reflects it adequately. So, what then does the intellect consider and how does it consider it? Insofar as something is, Aristotle and St. Thomas will say, it is knowable. It is intelligible. So whatever exists at least is at least potentially an object of thought. And Aristotle will observe that the intellect is potentially all things. This is the wildest claim that I will advance the entire night. It's 
It's pretty, it's pretty incredible, okay? That the mind is potentially all things. Just take a moment. Now we're back. The mind is potentially all things. I'm not saying this metaphorically. This isn't philosophical poetry. This is a real claim. That things that exist out there can begin to exist in our minds, in our thoughts, in our interior lives, by a kind of intentional existence or a kind of mental existence, which is still a real kind of existence. So we can have immaterial concepts. We can be a microcosm of the wider macrocosm, such that what is out there will take up residence within and form for us an interior world and culture. And this is different. This is distinct from the way that the senses work. So the senses are limited to individual things, right? Um, so yeah, like the senses are content with sensing this. The, the, the eye is content with just like seeing the red on the outside of a Chick-fil-A box, right? The nose is content with like smelling the light hint of spice on a spicy chicken deluxe. And the ear is content with like the sonorous dulcet tones of your sales associate saying my pleasure, okay? Whereas our mind is broken open unto the universal, right? We have more universal aspirations. We want to know everything in a way that defies a kind of crude particularization, all right? Um, so the intellect knows the essence of things by drawing it out from individual existing things and from their material conditions, known through the senses, truly, um, but that we now have access to the very whatness of what the thing is, the very essence of what the thing is, the very nature of what the thing is. And this isn't just to say that we kind of form holograms in our minds of what things are, right? Because a concept differs from a mere mental image. Rather, it's, it's of an immaterial order, and it now becomes the lens through which we re-engage with reality. So if you're like walking down the street, or crutching down the street, as it were, um, and you pass a, like a, a great dame. Let's say that you've been closeted all your life. Let's say that your parents are strange people and they're like, you need to have like a more whatever, dot, dot, dot. I'm not going to fill in that example because it'll get weird. But let's say that you haven't seen anything until the age of 14, okay? And then you're like, you know, going down the street and you see a great dame and your mom is like, that's a dog. You're like, fascinating. That is a dog. And then you pass next somebody walking a chihuahua, which I'm sure never actually happens. Um, certainly not in the South. Um, and, and she says to you, that is also a dog. You're like, wait, what is it that is common to dogs? Well, now you're forming in your mind an image from which your intellect is drawing out a concept which becomes the lens through which you now engage with all subsequent dogs. And then when you see like a basset hound or like, a, I don't know other dogs because I'm allergic to them and I've studied indifference. Um, when you see other ones, you're like, I can see how this is like those other dogs in certain essential ways. I can distinguish from what is dog in the strictest sense and then what is particular to this and that dog. All right? And as a result of which we form, again, an interior culture. These things take up residence in our minds and enrich our lives immeasurably. So... To return to that first uh, and most excellent of claims, the mind isn't anything of itself. It's potentially all things, and because it is potentially all things, it can become all things. So there isn't anything to it apart from the fact that it can become all things, all right? The very capacity for becoming like the objects that it knows. And what is the object of the mind? Here, let's uh, draw at the point which we just introduced. The object of the intellect is what is universally true what is universally true. It is not satisfied with one discrete truth. 
it is broken open unto infinity. And as a result of which, we are always free to inquire further. Because there's always an element of the thing known which leaves us somewhat unsatisfied. It leaves us desirous of knowing more, knowing more profoundly, more intensely, knowing to a greater extent, knowing the implications thereof, which will lead us on a kind of trajectory of inquiry which will last unto ages of ages. Okay, so that's a basic description of thinking. That's our first point. Next point, why bother with it? Okay, why bother with it? The things that you have described, Father Gregory, are like mildly interesting, somewhat romantic, filled with philosophical jargon, which I find are like unnecessarily obscure. Um, but like, why bother? Okay, I'm thinking, so I'm just kind of being difficult at this point. But still, it's worth being difficult because you were the one that introduced the question. You were the one that named the talk. So, deliver. Okay, excellent. Why bother with it? Well, because if we don't, it will haunt us for reasons that will become clear in what follows. Point number two, human flourishing. Let's think about thought in terms of human flourishing. Again, on the understanding of Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, a nature is a standard not only of being, but also of becoming. It's a principle of dynamism. So, you are a human person. You have certain capacities, you have certain faculties, certain powers, and those are trained on certain objects, and your life is successful or less successful to the extent that you engage profitably, well, um, you know, fruitfully with those objects. Uh, so what you are also determines what you are to become or how you ought to become, to do something very fast and loose, which the philosophers in the back of the room will probably find cringeworthy. Apologies. Um, so there is a sense in which what you are is not only a standard uh, for being, but also of becoming. A kind of simple example is, uh, because of what your teeth are, you use certain things to floss, and you don't use other things to floss. Okay? So you might be like, man, I have these spaces between my teeth. They're always getting poppy seeds lodged in them. So I'm just going to solve this problem once and for all and start flossing with sandpaper. Okay? That's a bad idea. Right? Because your teeth are covered in enamel. And enamel, though somewhat hardy, is also a bit brittle. And if you sand it down, it will be gone, and then you'll get tons of cavities in short order. So because of what your teeth are, you treat them, or they unfold, in a certain fashion. So too of human nature. Uh, a contemporary philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, will say it's a functional concept. All right? It comes with directions. Okay? So, things tend unto the fulfillment of their nature. So plants, you know, turn towards the sun so that their chlorophyll-filled leaves can flourish accordingly. Animals operate by a kind of instinct. So you don't need to, like, teach a sheep that it should evade a wolf. It just sees it, and then it flees. So they tend instinctually unto their perfection, which in this case is the preservation of their life. So too of us. That's the claim. Nature is best expressed, or this dynamism is brought to most perfect realization when it's firing on all cylinders, when it's really doing the very thing for which it is made. Now, I want to introduce just a kind of thought for sober reflection. We know this in a kind of instinctual way, but we also, we don't like for it to come too terribly easily, okay? So, like, um, we want to be tried and tested in such a way that forces us to flourish more intensely or forces us to kind of come more and more into our own. So I don't know that this experience is shared universally, but I suspect that if you've ever prepared for a test really well, let's say perchance that you started studying more than two days prior, okay, 
let's say you started studying like 10 days prior because you really love the subject matter and you really wanted to absorb it and interiorize it. All right, so you've been studying for like an hour and 15 minutes uh, for like the last 10 days. I know, wild. Um, and then you come to the test and the professor says, there is one question for this test. The question is, spell your name correctly. And you're like, wow. On the one hand, I'm kind of quietly contented that I got 100%, you know, barring any serious mishap. Um, I mean, worst case scenario, I just changed the spelling of my name legally, you know, whatever. Um, but I would also like to have been tested. I would have liked to have been forced to show that I'd mastered the concepts. I want to I wanna do something arduous and I want to do it well precisely because I have these type of aspirations in my heart. It's like, uh, for those of you who travel north to hike mountains, it's like the difference between driving to the top of Mount Mitchell and hiking to the top of Mount Mitchell. Like, when you hike there and then people have taken the toll road and they're up there in like high heels with like parasols, you look at those people and like, you're half alive, you know? <laughs> you know, like, I am fully alive right now. You know, I'm sweating through my shirt, I smell awful, and who knows if we're going to make it back in time on account of the fact that the sun is swiftly setting. But I was born for this, you know? I have come into the world for precisely this purpose, okay? So, nature, we said, is best expressed when it's firing on all cylinders, and we want this type of uh, grandeur, we want this type of difficulty, we want this type of test to elicit from us what it is that we are made for. So, all those things to which we are naturally inclined by virtue of what we are are good, and they are worthy of pursuit, and they draw out a kind of native excellence in us which we want to be expressed perfectly. St. Thomas will say that we see this kind of dynamism, this um, inclination to certain goods pertaining to our nature, uh, at, at fundamental levels. So you can see it just by virtue of the fact that you are a thing, that you are a substance, you want to continue being as much. You want to preserve your existence. So we're inclined to food and drink and sexual intercourse. Or just, I'll just content myself with food and drink, sexual intercourse in the next one. He says, we also, um, we want to hand on life, okay? Uh, so we want it so that there is a subsequent generation. This, he says, we hold in common with all animals, namely the inclination to procreation and education of children. And then he says, there are certain things to which we are inclined um, by virtue of the fact that we have minds with which to know and hearts with which to love. And he lists uh, to live in society, to know the truth about God, to avoid offending those with whom we live, and to shun ignorance. So he is suggesting that we are naturally inclined to know the truth, that that is somehow part and parcel of what it means to be successful or to flourish as a human being. So the suggestion is that human flourishing is bound up with thinking. The claim is not that you have to be smart to be good. That's not it at all. But it is to say that it is a worthy enterprise, regardless of um, how acute is your understanding or how perceptive are your observations, that the very process or the very endeavor of study or of learning the truth is something that is ennobling. It is something that gives concrete expression to what it is that we are. So then the next question arises, how can we be assured that we will gain access to the goods that fulfill our nature rather than being frustrated and tortured by our own unrealized aspirations? Like we said, there are so many ways to go wrong, and it can be so terribly frustrating. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of wishing that the world were smaller so that you could have more of it in your mind. Like sometimes the recognition of how much there is to know can be dispiriting. It's like, 
Yeah, you just feel overwhelmed and overmastered and humbled, and being humbled is about the worst experience in the world. And as a result of which, you're like, yeah, you know, I wish I could just like burn down half of all libraries so that way I could be like more excellent. It's like crazy, but you know, people think these things. Okay, so, so why go in for it when it can be so terribly frustrating? Because, and this is the rest of the argument, because it is for precisely this reason that we have been made. And if we rebel against the very thing for which we are made, the existential terror or the existential havoc that that wreaks in our interior life will tear our souls asunder. So we are capable of freely grasping and choosing whether or not to pursue our good. And the excellence of human life consists in doing just that. Somebody once asked me, like, why couldn't God in his dispensation made it such that we would always choose the good without fear of falling away? I said, well, he could have done that occasionalistically, you know, like give us grace at every moment so that we would never defect. But that seems to entail a kind of flawed creation, like shouldn't it operate by its own intrinsic principles? He's like, okay, I can see that. I was like, or he could have made us dogs. He's like, ah, fascinating. <laughs> so I submit to you that it's better not to be a dog, though it introduces all kinds of problems, yet they are problems that we would have uh, by comparison to the alternative. So powers we know, uh, whether of intellect or will or the others, they admit of various expressions, right? There's an ambivalence to our powers. We can opt for this and we can opt for that. We can um, be intellectually convinced that it's good to get ahead on study, but also um, kind of passionately convinced that unless we watch the end of the New Orleans Saints-Houston Texans game, that something will be lost for humanity. You know, like, I need to be here. I need to keep vigil. Like, who else will see the 58-yard field goal, um, if not me? So the answer is, like, 55 million other people. But, okay. Um, I watched it. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> We have powers that have an ambivalence to their expression. So we can opt for this, we can opt for that. And our, our inclinations, our powers, they can be trained to more reliably and stably choose what is good. And in so doing, they actually clarify for us what it is that we want. They clarify the good life. Um, as Aristotle observed, as a man is, so he sees. So as we get better and better at choosing what is true and what is good, we become the type of people who choose what is true and what is good, kind of as a matter of course. And you see where this is going. What we're talking about are virtues. So the classical expression is of the cardinal virtues, right, in the pagan tradition of temperance and fortitude and justice and prudence. And these are habits of mind and heart which help us to do just what we have described, to choose what is true and good and to do so stably and reliably. One of my favorite uh, definitions of a habit which a virtue is a species of, is a stable or permanent quality of the soul that disposes one to act easily, joyfully, and promptly under the influence of intellect and will, making one more or less apt to act well with respect to his end. Again, it's a stable or permanent quality of the soul, a kind of disposition, whereby you act easily, promptly, and joyfully. That is to say, you are spontaneously inclined to what is true and to what is good. It's not always a matter of moral heroism. You are not a rule-following juggernaut. Rather, you are somebody who actually delights in these things because they accord with what you are at the core of your being. To act easily, joyfully, and promptly under the influence of intellect and will, making one more or less apt in the case of vices, to act well with respect to his end. So these are what we mean by training an ambivalent power towards what it is that it is made for. 
And by being moved repeatedly, says the pagan tradition, the powers of the soul have formed in them these habitual qualities by which they are disposed to move in the same way in the future. So, talking specifically then about virtues, virtues are just good habits. They are ones that accord with with right reason. They accord with who we are. Aristotle will say uh, a virtue is what makes a man good and to act well. So it It's a modification of of who you are. It makes you better, but it also disposes you for action. So virtues are precisely expressed in acting, right? We are precisely expressed in acting. We are made as agents to unfold in this kind of dynamic way. And then to take another definition from the Christian tradition, St. Augustine says that a, a virtue is a good quality of mind by which we live rightly or righteously, of which no one can make bad use which God works in us without us. And the last part is about infused virtues, which we're not going to talk about, but I just thought you should know. (laughs) So we usually think about, when we usually think about virtues, we think about virtues of the passions, so like temperance, which moderates our desire for food, drink, and sexual uh, intercourse, or fortitude, which steals us against, you know, cowardice before difficulty, or kind of tempers us from being overly rash and throwing away our life. You know, it's like, yeah, this is a 65-foot cliff jump, and yeah, the water at the bottom is five feet, but like, you know, it's like, okay. So, usually we think about virtues of the passions or of the will, like justice, which regulates our interchanges with other people, giving them what is due, or charity, which makes us to love others with the love of God, and God with his own. But we can also talk about virtues of the mind, and this is our last point, a summary point. There are virtues which help us to think well. And they salvage for us a kind of coherent vision of reality. They make it so that we can engage with objects of thought in a way that isn't maddening or frustrating or ultimately self-defeating and nihilistic, but rather break us open to an intelligible world which enriches our soul beyond compare. So here's the final uh, kind of application section. The success or failure of your college experience is determined not so much by whether or not you secure a job because you could have done that at the age of 18, but by whether you have learned to think well, whether you have cultivated virtues of the mind. I realize that this sounds like a kind of dilettante claim. Like, of course you can say that. You're a priest. (laughs) You've never done an honest day's work in your life. It's like, whoa, okay. Um, You didn't say that, but I said that for you. Um, You know, like, I've got serious decisions to make and a serious salary to make and a serious family to support and, like, serious things. Like, what do you mean? I'm going to, like, think about things here? Are you kidding? I've got homework. Um, So I realize this is a somewhat um, contested claim, but I think it's worthy of entertaining, even if in a hypothetical way that will subsequently burrow its way into your conscience. So, again, the success or failure of your college experience is determined not so much by whether or not you secure a job but by whether you have learned to think well, whether you have cultivated virtues of the mind. What is our understanding of the university? Um, A lot of us think about it as a kind of pre-professional place. You need a BA or a BS in order to get a job. In certain disciplines, you need an MA or an MS, you know, or whatever. You need a further degree in order to get a job, in order to practice without threat of malfeasance in certain disciplines. And so we use it to that end, which is a perfectly legitimate use. I'm not contesting that in any way, shape, or form. But it risks absorbing all disciplines into this mentality. And the university becomes a kind of, as one guy describes it, or one professor describes it, a polytechnic utiliversity. All right? That's it. That's just all we have come for, and we cash out, and as a result of which we leave. 
So this mentality or this intellectual culture can accustom one to workaday thought. All right? We think about our lives and our classes after the manner of problem sets and lab reports. So regardless of what the discipline is, we think about it after a similar fashion. Now, we th that's how we think about physics homework, okay? That's how we think about biology homework. But I submit to you that that probably oughtn't be the way that we think about all assignments or all tasks in life. Because there is a kind of moral formation that is going on, and you are sowing the seeds of the person you are to become, and you're also beginning to entertain the questions of those that you would like to fuel your thought onto ages of ages. So the university is classically conceived as a place where one acquires the virtues, especially the intellectual virtues. And so this is part of our reclaiming and understanding of a liberal education or a liberal arts education. Um, and here, I'm just going to describe to you one habit and then give you a few pro tips. So here we go. One habit. Um, there's wisdom on the one hand, which sees the conclusions and the principles and the principles and the conclusions. There's understanding, which gives you a sensitivity to the principles of thought. There's knowledge, which, you know, cultivates for you a widened appreciation of demonstrative knowledge. There's prudence, which has you, like, reason well with respect to things to be done. There's art, which has you reason well with things to be made. But one that doesn't get a lot of play, uh, it's kind of tucked at the end of St. Thomas's description of pride and humility, is called studiousness, okay? Studiousness. Now, when you first hear that, you think, like, you know, somebody who doesn't answer text messages at certain times because they're doing their problems, okay? Or like somebody who goes to bed early. Or basically like a joy killer, you know? That's what we think of when we think of studiousness. It's like, bro, let's be spontaneous! And he's like, I have work to do. You're like, you're studious and I hate you for it. Okay. So that is not the studiousness that I am describing here, okay? Studiousness is a kind of intellectual temperance. And it's by contrast to a kind of intellectual intemperance, which St. Thomas calls curiosity, Okay? So let's talk curiosity briefly, and we'll get to studiousness. Curiosity is basically like intellectual thrill-seeking. One author describes it as a manifestation of a disordered desire to know, an unreasonable appetite for knowledge, a refusal to accept man's animal condition and its consequences. All right? So basically, we have this flesh and these bones. We are circumscribed by the very concrete circumstances of our lives, uh, we are just this person and no other. So, so there, our universal aspirations are nestled in this setting, in this time and place. So like when St. Thomas talks about the creation of Adam, he says that he was invested with all knowledge that was uh, necessary for him to know, both with respect to nature and grace. So like everything which pertained to his supernatural destiny and everything which pertained to his instruction of his offspring, Adam knew. But he says he wouldn't have known, like, the number of rocks at the bottom of a stream. Because you don't need to know that. That's knowledge of a sort, but it's not the knowledge that we need to live life well, right? To know, love, and serve God, and to enjoy Him in the next. So there are things that are worthy of knowing, and there are things that are not. The things that are worthy of not, we typically call trivia, okay? Now I'm going to invite you to an experience of life. I don't know if you've had the experience of, like, being at a meal, and somebody says... Like, I wonder, like, who was the first-round draft pick in the NBA in 2017? And let's say there are no, you know, Philadelphia fans present who remember that day with a kind of rue and dread because it was Markel Fultz who only ever played, like, 16 games for the Sixers and had a shoulder problem that has hounded him to the present day. So let's say you have no Philadelphia fans there who are downcast and downtrodden, all right? And you're like, who was it? Who was it? Who was it? And then somebody gets out their phone and just finds it out. The question is, do you need to know that? Does it matter? 
And is that the type of thing which encourages you to grow as a human being? All right, I'm not like getting down and looking things up, but I kind of am actually. Okay, so that's what we're talking about when we talk about curiositas. It's a desire to know just for knowing's sake, a kind of intemperance with respect to trivia. Studiousness, by comparison, is a bridling or a controlling of the innate desire to know. It is to the mind what chastity is to the body. So curiosity, I'm saying, is a kind of intellectual promiscuity. So the virtue of of studiousness would have us rightly order, direct, and limit our curiosity to know by studying first those things which are most important, by doing the work of going to the right sources, by relating what we discover to God, and by realistically accepting our limits. Okay? So, this I'm just suggesting to you is one virtue to cultivate a kind of intellectual life. The word intellectual is another one of those words that we have a reaction to. Flannery O'Connor referred to intellectuals, intellectuals, you know? So these are self-styled northern types who put on airs and try to impress at cocktail parties. But you can see right through them, okay? Intellectuals. I despise intellectuals, right? No. What we're talking about by cultivating an intellectual life is having a rich interior life to which you can retreat. To have a disciplined approach to knowing well, uh, to knowing in a blessed way, so that you are the type of person who is alive when your peers or not, who is the type of person who has eyes wild with true inquiry when everyone else around you is half awake. So, practicals for cultivating studiousness and more generally an intellectual life. I have five. They're simple. First, don't seek company in fear. Don't seek company in fear. I think a lot of times we indulge in curiosity because we are afraid of being alone or we are afraid of being alone with our thoughts. A cell phone often serves this purpose. Netflix often serves this purpose. What we want is to spend quality time, whether with our friends or with the Lord, all right? And, and in order to do that, we need to be content to do that. So avoid half work, okay? Don't do your homework with Netflix on, all right? If you can study with music, great, but most people can't, so don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can. All right? Avoid half work. Do ardently whatever you decide to do. Do it with your might. And let the whole of your activity be a series of vigorous, fresh starts. Half work, which is half rest, is good neither for rest nor for work, says a Dominican. His name is Sertiange. Related to this is to cultivate a sense of solitude. To cultivate a sense of solitude. And solitude is very closely wed to sadness. All right? Part of having an intellectual life is being okay with being a little bit sad, all right? And not using your cell phone and Netflix and the company of your friends to hold those kind of emotions at bay or to hold them off at arm's length. Sadness is just the necessary precondition to real interiority. There's a monastic dictum, cella continuata dulcesit, which is to say the cell held continuously is made sweet or sweetens. You come to find that as you spend time alone, you become more reconciled to the fact that there are certain places in your life that are really just for you and the Lord, okay, to which other people are not privy. And to share those things would, in a certain sense, be immodest, right? And in order to deepen that relationship and to be content with it or happy with that relationship, it it means a kind of retreat. This is the whole purpose behind taking retreats, all right? Don't seek company in fear, all right? 
it takes, I mean, to do this, it takes serious resolution, especially when there are like awkward times in your day that seem to smack of the need to fill them up, right? Like, what do I do with these 22 minutes? I'll just like read Bleeding Green Nation on the most recent exploits of the Philadelphia Eagles. You know, oh no, a defensive tackle has had some strange injury. Oh no, their secondary is still atrocious. Um, so I can do that for 20 minutes, right? Or I cannot do that for 20 minutes. The question is, what would I do? And that's terrifying. Maybe not as terrifying as I'm making it out to be, but it's still a little bit terrible. But it's in those moments that an interior life is cultivated. You can actually spend 20 minutes just thinking about things. Now you can think about like a future paper topic, which might not come due for 14 weeks, right? But you can actually sow in your heart the seeds that will bear fruit down the line. Monks uh, will often prepare their meditation points the night before so that they can sleep on them so they can receive a kind of secret growth from on eye. You cannot be charitable in every direction at once. You belong to the truth. Serve her first. All great works, says Sertiange, are prepared in the desert, including the redemption of the world. Also, read, and not just for class. Again, some people are just scared of intellectual things or scared of an intellectual life. One needn't be, because... An intellectual life is the kind of thing that enriches your life even if you're not good at it, okay? I once read an article. It was about a guy who went to the doctor. He was diagnosed as basically like pre-Alzheimer's, and he was like, yikes. And something that he, he had heard that was good for kind of keeping Alzheimer's at bay was learning a language. So he, he studied French pretty assiduously for two years, and then he went to France and found out that he was rubbish, complete rubbish at Fran French, Okay. And he was, like, dispirited by this. But then he came back, and his test results were markedly improved. It's the kind of thing that happens ex consequentia, says St. Thomas Aquinas. You know, it's just like, in training your mind on things worthy of pursuit, of worthy of consideration, there are other parts of your life which will sort themselves. There are other parts of their life which will take care of themselves. So it's good to have a kind of intellectual project, an ongoing intellectual project, something to have in the background. Okay? And it can be something for which you plan over the course of years. It can be a five-year project. You can get uh, a good book like James Shaw's Another Sort of Learning, which gives you a bibliography of things that you should consume. Or Frank Sheed wrote one called A Ground Plan for Catholic Reading. And just work through those texts. Not because you want to finish the list, but because these things have been curated for you as thoughts or concepts or realities worthy of consideration. Okay? The last one is to keep holy the Lord's Day, okay? Um, whether, you know, whenever you observe it, but typically on Sunday. Uh, to have a time set off when you don't work, a time free from the workaday world, when you know reliably that you will enjoy a modicum of leisure, something that's contemplative, something that's delightful, all right? And, and it can be really like a subtle temptation to assimilate that time, right? So I like reading theology, Right? Technically speaking, that's not work. But sometimes I'll see a four-hour chunk of time on Sunday, and I'll be like, all right, I'm going to honor the Sabbath, and I'm going to read like strange French Thomism from the 1950s for like four straight hours. And it's kind of taxing, you know? It's, there's a difference between, between reading that and then like reading Little House on the Prairie. Okay? Um, and I'm not saying that you should just read Pulp Fiction, the type of stuff which is written on paper that merits you throwing it away immediately after consumption. But I am saying that it should be something that's relaxing but still engaging. Relaxing but not passive. Not something on which you check out, but something that, that engages you as a thinker, as a human being. And this will mean, too, prayer. You know, that is 
the most distinctive act of a Sunday. Because study is closely allied with prayer. They are not to be divorced. Um, study and prayer are both contemplative exercises. All right? It's both kind of come before reality in a posture of begging. That there is something on offer in the world and in life that must be given to us. And that we are predisposed to receive by asking. So, in conclusion, it is a risk to think, undoubtedly, undeniably, decidedly so. But I submit to you that it is a worthy one. It gives us greater access to a wider range of goods, a greater fixity in the happiness proper to human life, a greater grandeur to the reach of the human person. It's like making a friendship in the sense that it opens your heart to a world of possibility and to a world of pain, but you wouldn't have it otherwise. To shrink from it is to abdicate one's dignity as a human being and to cease to strive for the full breadth of one's vocation. Brief theological postlude. To think is to be made more intensely to the image of God. For what it means to be to the image of God in the kind of classical conception is to have minds with which to know and hearts with which to love. And that the dignity and grandeur of a human being is to know God with his own knowledge and to love him with his own love. Such that we come to occupy a place at the heart of the most blessed trinity whereby we are assimilated while remaining distinct. While we are made good, blessed, and happy and partakers in a divine life. Thank you.